If you're struggling to attract new staff or your team is experiencing burnout, pick up your phone and call Guardian Vets. Through virtual team solutions like after-hour triage, daytime virtual receptionists, callbacks, and telemedicine, Guardian Vets can help you have happy staff, happy clients, and a thriving business. Go to www.guardianvets.com and check Veterinary Success Podcast in the Where Did You Hear About Us section to get a free consultation and receive 50% off your first month of service. Don't wait. Check out GuardianVets.com now. Welcome to the Veterinary Success Podcast. I'm your host, Isaiah Douglas, and we are going to jump into the episode here in just a moment. But real quick, we're going to take a break to hear from the sponsor of the show. If you're struggling to attract new staff or your team is experiencing burnout, pick up your phone and call Guardian Vets. Through virtual team solutions like after-hour triage, daytime virtual receptionists, callbacks, and telemedicine, Guardian Vets can help you have happy staff, happy clients, and a thriving business. Go to www.guardianvets.com and check Veterinary Success Podcast in the Where Did You Hear About Us section to get a free consultation and receive 50% off your first month of service. Don't wait. Check out guardianvets.com now. You've heard me talk about the opportunity in urgent care. So VetCheck believes in the power of your capacity to influence your patients, patient families, and be a leader in your community. How they do this is by giving you the freedom to take ownership of your future to make the biggest impact in your patients' lives. They equip you with a turnkey opportunity to take action on the dream through a unique pathway to owning your own VetCheck Pet Urgent Care Center franchise. They provide a solution to remove obstacles like competing against corporate dollars in the community that you want to be in and having access to hospital ownership, medical directorship, and more. Also, you become a partner along the journey. A vet check pet urgent care center franchise is the answer. If you're interested, check out episode number 80, where I talked to Dr. Siva and he shares more about his story and the opportunity. So if this sounds like something that's interesting to you, reach out and learn how you can own your own vet check pet urgent care center franchise today by visiting vetcheckforpets.com, which again is vetcheckforpets.com. All right. Thanks for joining us today. I am excited to have a returning guest on a topic that I think is super, super important, but also really interesting. And that is Carson Taylor, who is a, I would say an entrepreneur just in the veterinary industry, but best known for co-founding and a partner in two different businesses. The first is Vet Value, and the other one is DVM Evolution. And so Vet Value is focused on helping democratize and make understanding what your clinic hospital practice is worth easier and then the DVM evolution is really helping to make the process of going through a sale better and optimizing that for a lot of different factors, which we'll get into a little bit today as well. But Carson, thanks so much for joining me. Yeah, it's good to be back and appreciate that nice introduction. Absolutely. And I have a lot of folks that will ask like, well, is this a good deal to maybe buy into a clinic or an opportunity? And sometimes I'm like, hey, the idea behind vet value is for a current owner to go and value it, but it can be used, right, as a way to say, what should this business be worth? And I wanted to just kind of kick things off and just kind of ask you about what updates have happened since we chatted last. So for those that maybe aren't going to be familiar with Carson, we chatted in episode 59. That's kind of his backstory, a little bit of what is going on from the valuation standpoint. But I guess any updates to vet value and then how would you answer a maybe potential acquirer leveraging or using that value as a tool there? 
Yeah, good question. I don't remember exactly when we spoke, but must have been at least a year ago. And since that time, I mean, our mission really at Fit Value has stayed the same, which is we're attempting to provide financial tools to independent practice owners that can help them better run their businesses. The first tool we began with was our valuation product. We rolled out a free version of that, which you can access by logging into our website. We also had a more extensive report available for a price. And since then, we've rolled out sort of a second extensive report, which is a little shorter in form. And we've done some enhancements on our both free and easy valuation and our detailed valuation. And as at the beginning of this year, we've also rolled out a brokerage service through Bet Value, which we can talk a little more about. But our attempt there is, again, we're trying to provide better service, a better brokerage service to veterinary owners, because fundamentally what I'm trying to avoid overall is these independent owners getting bested by the consolidation process, right? I want them to know what their practice is worth. And I want them to be able to sell their practice effectively for a reasonable price if that's something they choose to do. Let's dive in a little bit to kind of that DBM evolution and kind of the role of what that service is, because I get the question, I know that you probably do as well, the idea of like, so what exactly do you do? Explain the services, because a lot of times in intro calls, people are like, hey, I have financial questions, but you know, is a financial advisor really what I want to hire? Do I need them? And I think it's helping just lay the foundation of what that service is just to kind of help people understand. So if you had to really explain what you all are doing, I think that's probably a great place to kick things off. Yeah. I came from Wall Street and I was doing mergers and acquisitions for private equity companies and large corporate healthcare companies. And at that level, if you have a $200, $300 million company, you'll always, almost always hire a financial advisor if you seek to sell that company. Now, the private equity firms that hire banks like RBC, where I work, or Goldman Sachs, a competitor of ours at the time, they have a lot of expertise. A lot of them came from investment banking. They know how to do deals, but they hire a financial advisor because having an intermediary, someone who can represent your interests, but also interact with potential buyers and run sort of the process of selling the company is always useful. And so we've tried to take that role of financial advisor and bring it to independent practice owners. Now, typically, the best financial advisors have done really large deals because to sell a company, whether it's a small business, whether it's a large business, there's a lot of work. There are a lot of custom things that happen in the process. There's a lot of custom analysis you have to do to respond to situations that come up. And then there's generally the prep work of preparing that business to be marketed. Then there's the diligence that follows and persists from the LOI until the LOI is signed. So there's a lot of human work that goes into that that can't be done by a machine. And there's a lot of expertise that has to go into be able to providing that work as an advisor properly. So we've sought to bring that down market to small businesses, particularly veterinary practice owners. And what that practically means is that if you sign us up because you've decided that you want to pursue or investigate a strategic transaction to a corporate party, we're basically your ride and die advisor on that deal from start to close and after close, if necessary, we'll be right there in your hip pocket 
we've been there before. We can respond to any twists and turns, any situations that come up. We know how to prepare your practice for market, everything that needs to be provided to buyers and at what time. And we help you close a deal once you accept an LOI. So we really do everything and are kind of, as I said, a ride and die advisor. And so that's our financial advisory business. The goal there is to sort of take the service that Goldman Sachs or RBC provided to 200 to billion dollar companies and provide that to selling owners. And we've been pretty effective in that. Now, the brokerage service is somewhat different. It's a more limited sort of service offering. What you see for small businesses, as well as selling houses, and certainly in the veterinary industry, are people hanging up a shingle as brokers. Brokerage function, I know because I bought an apartment recently, is very different in scope than what a financial advisor does. A broker typically sees their goal as connecting a buyer with a seller. And so that service, in our minds, is definitely of less value than the financial advisory. But we've sought to do it as effectively and as cheaply as we can at Vet Value. We've rolled out our service. It's called Vet Value Connect. And the purpose there is to kind of take what we've learned as a financial advisor, really strip down the service such that we can provide the service for a brokerage fee that was among the lowest in the industry and provide what we think is the most effective brokerage function at that price point. So we provide access to all the buyers that we know. There are at least 40 of them out there. We know quite a bit about a lot of them, having interacted with them over the years, having sold some of them practices, having looked at LOIs from many of them. Provide connectivity. We provide basic preparation of your practice for market using certain technology and processes we've developed that are proprietary over the last couple of years. And then we facilitate for you a custom auction process, which the end of which the goal is to kind of find you the best partner at the best terms. Where we sort of trim back that service relative to our financial advisory are the things that require time from the experts, right? Time is the only resource really that we have to give. And the time that we're willing to provide in a financial advisory assignment, the consultation, the custom and bespoke analysis, that we kind of trim that back for the brokerage service to really only give you the basic function that'll get you to an acceptable outcome. It won't get you to the same kind of outcome you could get if you hired a financial advisor but it'll get you to a much better outcome than you could get on your own in our estimation. Yeah. And I think just a point of clarity, when you talk about financial advisory, it is absolutely like kind of helping through the transition piece. I would just say from a financial advisory standpoint, from like what Vincere and what like Isaiah does from a day to day, very, very different, even though they are obviously talking about financial topics and providing advice and guidance. But just as a listener, there is that difference there. The other thing, or there's two other questions real quick. LOI, which stands for letter of intent. I think that's important for people to understand. And then the other really interesting thing you talked about is 40 different buyers and knowing some of the differences between them and how much maybe one will negotiate versus another. Do you see some being more flexible and others kind of sticking to their guns and they're never really going to deviate from their standard process? Because I think that would be interesting. Again, not to name names and say, hey, this is a great one and this is a bad one. But do you see kind of that flexibility depending on the deals of kind of where your expertise can come in and say, hey, we know that we can push a little bit on these terms because these are negotiable where this one is not? Well, it runs the gamut. The approach 
how these buyers look at the process of integrating your practice, the type of consideration the buyers will provide, whether some will just give you a chunk of cash, others will give you some cash, but then also some equity in their own company. Others will structure the deals as a JV. And there are other variations on that theme. So type of consideration offered. Some are more aggressive in terms of what they're willing to pay at any given time. Usually that's related to sort of where they are in the ownership cycle. They have private equity owners and and sometimes those private equity owners are willing to be more or instruct the company to be more aggressive in acquisition. Sometimes they instruct the company to kind of dial back. So, I mean, it totally runs the gamut and there are all varieties out there. And I think where we add value there is we know the questions to ask, right? We've spoken at length to many, many of the leading consolidators. We know how many of them operate. And if we come across a new one, we know the questions to ask that matter to a seller. And we have those conversations as much as we can just to make sure we know and we can kind of communicate our opinions and also some of the facts to clients that ask that of us. Can you go through what a JV is? I know you just mentioned that. And for those listening, they might not know the term. Yeah. So when you talk about a practice sale, a lot of times, if you're the owner, the buyer would like you to stay on for some period of time. They don't want you to just walk out the door the day the deal closes and never look back. There are a lot of different reasons for that, but primarily it's more likely that when they do that acquisition, if the owner stays on, there's continuity and it's going to be an easier transition for the staff. Plus, not all owners, when they sell, are prepared to retire. So for a variety of reasons, most of the corporate buyers want the owner to stay on for some period of time. And so the joint venture is sort of one way of providing an incentive to stay on and continue to perform. The joint venture is when the corporate buys that practice specifically and the selling owner is given a continued share in the performance of that practice. It differs from equity consideration. And then if you sell your practice and you get equity consideration in the consolidator, generally what you have is a share in the equity of that consolidator, which is more diversified, right? Because it'll rise and fall with the fate of the entire portfolio of the consolidator. Whereas a JV, you have a stake only in that practice. So the value of that stake will rise and fall with the fate of that practice alone. Perfect. Yeah. Thank you for that. And just kind of going through, I'm going to ask a couple different questions and you can kind of run with it and we'll unpack them as we go. But just trying to understand the different deal structures, which you just kind of outlined there, trying to think who's a good candidate and kind of what the market looks like. Because I know when we've chatted offline a handful of different times, Sometimes who was the ideal candidate 24 months ago might be slightly different today. And then as a seller, kind of what that criteria looks like and what they should kind of be preparing for and thinking through. And I know that's a lot there and we can kind of unpack each one, but let's jump into those different questions. So you're fundamentally asking if I'm contemplating selling my practice to a corporate party, how do I think about whether I would prefer it? a joint venture structure or an all cash deal or something else? Is that kind of the question here? Yeah. So I think the question is, A, if I'm an owner and I'm looking at things today, am I even a good candidate? What's a good candidate to kind of connect with Carson to think about, okay, what's corporate looking for? 
And then, yeah, how would I kind of evaluate the different deal structures? And I think going back to what you just talked about, not everyone's ready to retire. So you might need a paycheck for a while, or you might need some additional upside down the road. But just as an owner, how to think through, am I a good candidate? What are good candidates today? And then kind of what the different structures could look like. Yeah. So there's a fair amount of flexibility first in terms of the criteria. I think the common sort of knowledge in the market is that you have to have at least revenue of one and a quarter million to even sort of begin interesting corporate partners. I don't know that the line is so hard and fast. Primarily what a corporate is going to look for is they don't want to buy empty practices, right? So if you want to retire and you're the only doctor there, you're very unlikely to get a lot of corporate interest. I mean, it's not impossible, but it's not going to be sort of a plain vanilla practice and candidate for corporate acquisition. Now, if you have a two-doctor practice and one of the doctors will continue on a full-time basis and maybe you'll continue on a full-time basis for some period of time and then possibly switch to part-time, that could be a candidate for corporate acquisition. Again, though, it's not a particularly attractive opportunity for corporate acquisition. It's still a small practice and there is risk. You as the owner after the deal could kind of, if you leave or something goes awry, there's really only one doctor there. That being said, corporates will look at deals like that. Where they really start to get excited, I think, is if there are two or more full-time doctors that are going to continue after the acquisition. Those are really the deals where the corporates are snapping up all the practices like that. The revenue, I think, is sort of less important than that element, the two or more practices. And being in a very attractive market, a market where the population is growing, where household income is increasing, that might be a condition where if you have one of the smaller practices I mentioned, a corporate could be very interested in inquiring your practice, even potentially an empty practice, provided they have infrastructure and other practices in the area. But really what we're talking about are practices where two or more doctors are going to be continuing post-transition. What was the second part of that question? So I think that kind of gives a good idea from a Am I a good candidate of kind of like a little bit about location, a little bit about revenue and kind of the makeup of the doctors? Because we both know, and I think anyone listening to this, that finding talent today and finding doctors to work is bar none the hardest thing to do. So if you're going to acquire a practice, you know someone's going to retire. Might be a wonderful practice, but who's going to work it (laughs) from here moving forward? So that makes total sense. But then trying to understand and go through different deal structures, I would imagine if I am maybe that doctor that's going to then move maybe more to part time maybe there's going to be less cash up front and more of like some sort of earn out. And I think trying to understand and unpack what you've seen just from conversations and deals that you've done, what the makeup of some of those deals have looked like. Has it been more, it's going to be a JV. Hey, you're going to get some more equity in this larger corporate consolidator. How long do I have to stay? Am I staying for years? Am I staying for six months? And just kind of trying to understand that. And I know there is, again, it's going to be, it's dependent on the situation, but trying to paint a picture for what that could look like. Yeah. Sort of a broad strokes picture, I think, if you're a seller, if you have more than three or four years of practice, that's really a good time to be a seller. Like if you're selling when you're retiring, it's almost as if you waited too late. You want to sell when you have at least a couple more years of practice because then you can really commit to being there to help the transition. And any corporate buyer will look at that favorably. 
because they know that you as the owner are essential to kind of having that practice get successfully integrated and being able to realize the value of the investment they're making in the practice. So that's kind of one element of it. Don't wait until you want to retire to sell your practice. You're going to get a much better deal if you're willing to kind of transition and spend a couple of years to make sure that practice is successful. Now, the way I look at broadly, the type of consideration you have is cash, corporate equity, where we said before, you're taking equity in a large organization that might own many, many hospitals or joint venture where you're taking equity in your hospital only. So a lot of the owners that we come to are selling not because they want to get out of practice, but because they want to stop being a small business owner. They want support to help them run the business elements of their practice so that they can spend more time focusing on the clinical work, which they enjoy and will continue to enjoy. So if this is kind of where you find yourself, this is not a bad place to be by any means. I mean, there are a lot of consolidators and that's really what they do. They're good at the business elements and they want you to be happy in your practice, but they want to make sure that the practice is well run and that's what they're good at. But if that's kind of where you stand, you're probably most likely going to be interested in taking corporate equity, right? Because you're kind of offloading certain management responsibilities, but you'll continue to be working effectively on a clinical basis. Where you might be interested in taking a JV stake is if you continue to, like if you'll play a large role in the management, the business management of your practice. And that's kind of the line we make when we talk to our clients. Okay, yeah, you really love running this practice and we can see that you're on a great practice. You're a very good candidate for a JV. We can see that you're an excellent doctor, but you've told us that some of the responsibilities of running a small business are starting to wear on you. Most likely, you're going to be a better candidate to kind of pick up some corporate equity. And yeah, if you do own a multi-doctor practice and you want to retire and you don't want to do anything at the practice after, cash. Cash is your friend. Where we see earnouts typically... so. Earnouts, we do see as part of the consideration commonly. The reason we see earnouts is because we do a lot of work to present a pro forma normalized EBITDA, earnings before interest taxes, depreciation, amortization, EBITDA. So we do a lot of work to present a pro forma normalized number. And that's a very different number than what I could calculate in five minutes using your income statement right? The algebraic calculation of it. What we're trying to capture is a current snapshot of the profitability of the practice at a point in time and have that profitability sort of reflect what that practice would look like in the buyer's organization. And so typically that requires a number of different kinds of adjustments. In some cases, we end up making adjustments to revenue and so we'll present to the buyers this pro forma normalized number that might have some adjustments to the revenue of the practice and has some other adjustments. And so what we're capturing is this is the earnings power of the business today for these reasons. But the buyer might look at that and say, well, some of these adjustments are kind of, they're to come, right? They're in the future. And so usually where we see earnouts is earnouts help to bridge the gap, right? We want the buyers to value the practice on that pro forma normalized EBITDA number, but there's some estimates in there. 
And so we say to them, okay, why don't you, you don't buy this adjustment or there's an estimate here that you can't get comfortable with, bridge the gap with an earnout that de-risks your investment, right? Because you'll only pay it if the practice actually performs and realizes that adjustment. So that's typically how we like to use earnouts. It just kind of bridges the gap to a higher valuation because the buyer doesn't have to pay it until something is realized. The other way we sort of look at earnouts are all of these buyers are financing these acquisitions through debt and lenders will look at certain kind of adjustments to EBITDA, but others they will not give credit for. And so the difference between sort of our normalized EBITDA and our pro forma normalized EBITDA, you cover that with an earnout because the lenders are going to look at those pro forma adjustments and say, yeah, I can't finance that. And so again, you can bridge the gap. You say, okay, well, we want value for these adjustments, but we recognize you can't get debt financing for them. So if you do an earnout, the adjustments will be realized in the P&L. And when you have to pay that money, then you can finance the purchase price there. That was, I think, a little bit technical, but that's really kind of how we use earnouts at DBM Evolution. Yeah, I was going to say technical. I agree. I don't think it was that confusing. I think if you're driving and you're trying to listen to Carson right there and you're like, ooh, yeah, I think I get that. It might be one that you just kind of rewind and go back through. But no, I think it was excellent. But yeah, it kind of speaks to, hey, why? And like, what's the role? Carson, if everyone wants to buy my clinic, like, why would I want to go and hire someone to do it? And it's like, there's a good answer. Because <laughs> I would imagine, again, if there's 40 different buyers, and you have those conversations, they're able to know that you're going to be on either side of a deal in the future. And you want a successful outcome for all parties. No one's trying to like necessarily say, hey, we have to get this, 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 and this. You want it to be fair. And I think that's what the role is, is to say, hey, Mr. or Mrs. Practice Owner, just make sure you get a fair value for what you're doing. Because there are a lot of people that are doing this on a day-to-day basis where they're doing 10, 20, 30 deals a year, and you're doing one your entire life. It's going to be really hard for you to understand some of the terms and some things that are there. And the numbers can still be huge and they can be big life-changing money, but you could also be selling at a discount that you should get a significant amount more. But one thing, I'll let you give some feedback on it, but I loved something you said when we chatted earlier off the podcast, but it was practice value needs time to build. And that's not something you can just come in day one and say, hey, Carson, how do I get maximum dollars? I want to sell tomorrow. It's like, "Uh, if you want to do that, like it takes time to improve things. I think that speaks back to some of the advisory work of saying, okay, we're going to build this up over time. And if you have three to four years left to work, we can get there. But if you're coming to me today saying, I have to get out, makes it a lot harder from your perspective to be able to add as much value as you can. Yeah. I mean, the private equity companies I used to work with at RBC, they would buy a company. Okay. We closed the deal. We bought this really exciting company. We're excited to hold this for five years. Two months later, they'd call us back in to talk about valuation and exit options, right? They'd be thinking about how they can exit that business in the best way for their limited partners right after they close a deal, right? So they're always thinking about how do I build value in this business? What is the market going to value? How do I run this business to build value? And I don't often see that mindset in practice owners. They're kind of working, 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 working. They say, okay, I got to get out, time to sell. It's like, well, you want to plan that exit years in advance so that you can really optimize the value at the time you're selling of the practice that you've built over the course of a career. There are many different ways you can do that. I'm not a business management consultant. We know a few things that we can do that kind of can optimize value in a shorter period of time in three to four months or over the course of kind of a typical engagement we might have. But 
there are a lot of resources out there that can help you build value over years in your practice. And I would encourage you to avail yourself of them. Yeah, absolutely. And we'll have some of those folks on the podcast. We've had them on in the past. So there are some great folks that you and I both know. What about real estate? And how does that come into play if I have the business and the real estate? And do you see that ever being a showstopper? Does it add complexity? Is it easier to sell if I'm just leasing? What have you seen there? Just out of curiosity. Real estate is really a different asset, right? If you look at a practice and you own the real estate and you own the practice, you have two assets in there, right? You have the operating assets of the practice. This is the business. And then you have the real estate on which it's built. So you want to kind of think about those things differently. And they're different buyers. What we think of the corporates, they buy practices. They don't always buy the real estate. Some of them buy the real estate, but primarily what they're buying is the business of the practice. There are other buyers out there that only look at the real estate. They want to own that building and they want to collect a lease payment every month. So you, first step is really to kind of split out the value of the two things and recognize that you could hold on to the practice and sell your real estate, or you could sell your practice and hold on to the real estate. So that's, I think, kind of the first realization there. Typically, we're selling the business. That to us is what we do. We sell the operating business. Most of our clients, if they own the real estate, when they come to us, we'll hold on to the real estate post-transaction. So what they'll do is we'll look at the lease they have with themselves. We'll help them gross that up to market, right? So it's something that the buyer is willing to pay and something that sort of is a market lease. And then once you put a new lease in with the buyer, though you are the landlord, that lease is pretty close to market, and therefore you can sell the property to somebody else if you want to without changing that lease. And one reason you might want to do it this way as opposed to selling the property before you transition your practice or selling the property with the transition is that almost always the corporate that buys your practice is going to be a better credit than you would individually. And therefore, the buyers that will look at your real estate after you've sold your practice, say, to someone like NBA, are going to be willing to pay more because the credit of that operator is better than your own credit. And so most of our clients, if they own the real estate, when they come to us, they'll hold it. A couple of years go by after they've sold the operating assets and then they can sell their real estate. Yeah, I think that's a really good point. And it's been brought up. Raul Chatajid from Matthews, we did a episode and I'm trying to remember what number, but he talked a lot about that as far as when you do sell the business and then you are signing, let's say still in the real estate, you sign that new lease with yeah, NVA, VCA, whoever. There are a lot of people that want that. And you have a lot of value then in that real estate where you can either say, hey, I'm going to hold this for maybe the next 10 years or whatever, or you could turn around and sell it. We also chatted because I know VMX was fairly recently and you talked about there's a lot of people that were presenting and exhibiting there that were new real estate funds in veterinary medicine. So there is absolutely demand for that aspect as well. And I think it's a really interesting time to have the business being an operating business and then have the veterinary real estate. And so if you are both of those as an owner, it's a really, really great time to look at options there. Yeah. I'd find a home for the operating business first and worry about the real estate later yep. because it's going to become more valuable if the tenant is kind of a national operator. Yeah, I think that's great advice. What's something I haven't asked about yet that you think is really, really important from either a vet value, DVM evolution, just thinking through this process and like what you all do for veterinarians? Yeah. The thing that I think is just, I see again and again is you don't know what you don't know. Like I think clients, owners have a kind of picture of what brokers do in this market. 
And a lot of times they're trying to get out of using a broker. And I identify with that. When I bought an apartment, I had to pay a broker fee. I paid that broker fee to another person at the same firm that was selling the apartment. So I was not going to get very good representation. And yet I had to pay that fee anyway. I think a lot of selling owners sort of look at brokers in that way. But the fact is, there is a tremendous value to experience when you're talking about selling companies. That's the reason you have Wall Street bankers making millions of dollars a year, because they have experience that is very uncommon and skills that are also uncommon. There's a tremendous amount of value to having somebody who's done it before in your camp, advising you specifically, collecting fees from you only. And there's also a lot of bad behavior, I think, among the brokerage community for small businesses, not specific to veterinary, but certainly in veterinary. A lot of sort of self-dealing and things that people do that don't necessarily benefit their clients. So all of that is sort of given the brokerage service a really bad name. And yet it is necessary, like having an advisor there with you when you go through this process is super necessary just like having a lawyer is necessary. But lawyers don't perform the same function in these deals. Lawyers are there to kind of protect your downside, make sure you don't sign something that's going to cause severe problems for you later on. But they're not there to serve that function, to connect and to find buyers and get buyers to pay and structure the deals. And so I think you need to kind of that mindset where, oh, I can do this alone, it's a relic. Maybe that worked when you were selling to another veterinarian or there were two consolidators in the market. But now, like I said, they're 40. They have some of the best lawyers in the country that work for them. And you need all the expertise and help that you can get, I think, if you really want to get the best deal that you can get. And unfortunately, it's still the same story as it was last year when we talked before. A lot of people kind of end up just doing the deal themselves without hiring a broker or a financial advisor or any kind of expert who can help them get a better deal. And the result is millions upon millions of dollars going from independent practice owners to private equity firms, which makes me sad personally. Yeah. And again, we can talk about dollars and cents all day, but sometimes it's just the terms going back to like how you want this to be structured. And there's going to be times where the terms may be more attractive on what they're solving for, where if you're just accepting someone else's deal and not having someone walk you through it to help negotiate, like what is it that you're trying to solve for? I think that is difficult as an operator, as a veterinarian, that's an owner. That's difficult where it's like, again, they've done it one time, maybe, or this is the only time where you're seeing deal after deal after deal and knowing where there's kind of points where you can press a little bit and get a little bit more and that adds up. But yeah, absolutely. If you just want to look at it from a monetary standpoint, yeah, there's millions of dollars that are left on the table. And I know you've kind of pounded the desk on this and I appreciate that. Well, the other thing that's actually, you brought up a good point, but the other thing that I think is super difficult and you stand very little chance, I think, of doing this successfully unless you have an expert is when you have a set of LOIs to analyze, and some of those LOIs contain non-cash consideration, like we talked about, they give you a slice of equity in the corporate consolidator or a share of the practice. To be able to compare one LOI to the other, if you're comparing dollar for dollar, the value of this equity in this LOI to the value of the equity in this other, there's a lot that goes into that. It's not just an issue of, oh, this is 
$5 million on the face of things. This is $6 million. Every consolidator, you can dig down deep and they're not all valued the same. Like some are more valuable than others. Some have more risk in their equity than others. Some are likely to have faster growth. I mean, there's a lot of complexity to that. And having an expert there is worth a lot of money. Like you should be willing to pay a lot of money to have an expert who can help you walk through that because they are not the same, all the consolidators and the equity they're going to offer you is very difficult to compare if you don't have a background in business valuations or a background in private equity. Yeah, that is a fantastic point. And also knowing that what's the liquidity, and I hate like jargony terms, but how do you sell that portion of this business that you own and how's it going to be valued? And yeah, the execution risk of this business moving forward, there's a lot to understand on just being able to see that and understand it and knowing from your seat, Carson, what they typically are buying and are they acquiring really good, well-run practices or are they willing to, you know, eh, we're okay to maybe cut corners in this spot. And going back to the idea of when private equity is, when they're going through a recap and they're a little bit more flexible on their underwriting standards, that might be good for a seller at that point, but that might not be good for them down the road if they're going to hold a bunch of equity in this business, if they're going to be other lesser quality companies coming in. So yeah, that is actually a really interesting area to get into that I don't think a lot of veterinarians think about at all. I don't think that ever gets brought up. Well, you don't think about it, right? And the other thing you see, you sign on, right? If you get equity in this consolidator as part of your deal, you're signing on to the operating agreement that the private equity company has with the company. And a lot of times that agreement has elements in it that are disadvantageous to an individual who's signing on, right? The operating agreement is set up to provide certain advantages to the primary shareholder, which is the private equity firm. And you might not get those advantages. So, I mean, even if you took the equity of one consolidator and it looks very similar to the equity of another, at least in terms of how that equity would be valued, the terms that are offered to you may be very different depending on what's in that operating agreement. The problem is the way these processes proceed You begin speaking with a buyer or a buyer too. You give them some information. They give you an offer. The offer is non-binding, right? So what is in that offer that's non-binding? Well, certainly they'll mention the purchase price and, hey, we're going to give you this much equity too, or it's JV. They'll mention some kind of high-level things. But underlying that, before you get to deal close, there are hundreds of different legal terms that aren't even broached in that LOI, right? And so Almost as soon as you sign that LOI, more of the leverage in this deal shifts from you to the buyer, right? They have you now. It's going to almost always be more expensive for you to walk away from that deal than it will be for them. And the first thing they're going to start doing once you sign the LOI, they want to start meeting your doctors and staff. Guess what? You introduce them to your doctors and staff, they have even more leverage. So now if you start to put up a fight about some of the terms that you see you don't like, they say, sorry, we're not going to change it. What are you going to do? Your option is to walk away. And now your whole staff and your doctors know that you're looking at this transaction, which could create problems for you, or you accept the terms that they give you. So all of this has to be done very carefully. And that's what we do as experts. We know how to do it carefully. So to make sure that that deal that's in the LOI is well enough defined so that at that point, when you have max leverage over that potential buyer, you're getting as much specificity to that deal as you can. And I think people totally don't appreciate that. 
the people that do appreciate that are the buyers, of course, though, right? They know all the tricks. They know where their leverage is. And they know the terms that they want to use and how to get you to accept them. Yeah, I think that's, again, I say this a lot, but I learn a ton every time we chat. So I'm glad we're able to record this conversation. For those that are looking to connect, have questions, how best to reach out on the various different offerings that you and the team have, where would you send them and how would you kind of encourage them to reach out? You can find me on LinkedIn, Carson Taylor. You can reach out over LinkedIn. You can go to our website, www.vetvalue.pet. We have a place where you can submit an inquiry or just shoot me an email, carson at vetvalue.pet. Happy to talk to any independent practice owner about anything they think I can be helpful with. Yeah, absolutely. Appreciate it as always. Thank you for the time and the knowledge shared. And we'll chat again here in the future. Thank you, Carson. Yes, thank you, Isaiah. And good to talk to you. Thanks for listening to today's show. The comments made on today's show should not be taken as investment, tax, or legal advice. All comments are for educational purposes only. You should consult your team before implementing anything. Isaiah Douglas is a partner of Vincere Wealth Management. Isaiah is registered in the state of Indiana, California, Texas. The biggest compliment you can give to this podcast is to share it with a friend. Reviews help the show get found, and Apple Podcasts is the platform that predominantly is how people listen to the show. If you have three to five minutes, you like the show, please head over to Apple Podcasts, give us an honest rating and review. That'll help more people find the show. For all of today's links and information, head over to veterinariansuccesspodcast.com. There you can subscribe via your favorite podcast platform platform so you won't miss another episode. Finally, if you'd like more information, insights, and have the ability for your voice to be heard and interact with show guests, join the private Facebook group. You can go to the Veterinary Success Podcast on Facebook or head over to the veterinariansuccesspodcast.com. Scroll all the way to the bottom where it says about your host and then click on the Facebook icon. That'll bring you into the Facebook group. I'll approve you. You'll be in. And then I'd love to hear your questions, feedback, and anything that you'd like to see added to the show. So with all that, thank you so much for listening. I'll be talking again to you soon.